Otherwise, we'll end up spending all our time in the Supreme Court paying huge sums of money to bloody lawyers, frankly. And we shouldn't be allowing the Supreme Court to essentially be the, the second chamber in the Scottish Parliament determining what should and shouldn't be passed. That was Professor James Mitchell, public policy expert on the SNP's legislation problems. Hello and welcome to The Stushy, the award-winning Scottish politics podcast from DC Thompson that helps you be better briefed. I'm Andy Phillip and on this episode I'll be joined by a crack team of political reporters to look at the big stories of the week and how the policy decisions in Edinburgh affect our communities. We're recording this at the end of another bruising week for the SNP leadership. Nicola Sturgeon has been getting more criticism, much of it quite personal, over the blocked gender recognition reforms. Her long estranged colleague Alex Salmond has been using the controversy to hit the SNP, kicking things off with a burn supper broadside in Dundee. He did the rounds all over the UK to undermine the First Minister. Nicola Sturgeon took a press conference at the start of the week, which I attended. Gender reform again dominated, but the questions are getting weirder and weirder. Physical anatomy is now being described on the telly in Parliament and on placards outside the Scottish Parliament, where there was large demo on Thursday. And while gender reform keeps hogging the headlines, there is so much more going on. Not all of it good for the embattled leadership. Fergus Ewing, himself a former SNP government minister who sits on the back benches at Holyrood, has been heavily critical of policies, including delays in infrastructure and flagship new environmental plans for a bottle deposit scheme, a long-promised scheme at that. But they also face calls at a Holyrood committee to bin the current framing of a new national care service. Again, uh, uh, something that people describe as a flagship policy. There's too many flagships here. An alcohol advertising ban is, is causing industry anger too. Earlier, Justin Bowie spoke to Professor James Mitchell, an expert in public policy, about the SNP's record. He started by asking if the opposition are right to frame these problems as the SNP just setting bad law. I think it's more complicated. I mean, you will almost always find some voices, some interests that are offended by new policy, new law, and they will oppose it. And of course, they will often argue that the law is not just against their interests. They will say it's bad law and and so on and so forth. So you're always going to get that and trying to distinguish that from problems which arise. And I think we're seeing quite a lot of this now, which should have been foreseen and which the government could have taken action and avoided. Um, That's, I think, what we are certainly seeing um, with some of these issues. I would stress that, of course, some of these issues you've been mentioning are complex and difficult issues, and it's not always easy to get them right. I mean, there are some policy areas are relatively, and stress relatively easily dealt with, but there are also what we often call wicked problems, really complex problems, really difficult problems. And and this is when governments are really tested. And I think in, in some of these cases, we are talking about very complex, very difficult areas. Um, that said, I don't think they've been handled very well by the government. What areas do you think they've handled badly in particular? Looking at, say, an example like the gender reform, given I suppose that's been the recent debate in Hollywood, what, what's gone wrong? I think with the gender reform, I think the government probably set out with very good intentions. I've no doubt at all that there were very good intentions. And I think there is a case, an absolutely overwhelming case, that trans rights need to be uh, enacted and need to be addressed. There's, There's no doubt at all about that. And there's very little opposition to that, in truth. 
But the problem is, and this is not uncommon, that sometimes when you rush into some an area, you ignore some of the unintended consequences. And a good government always has an eye on unintended consequences. And in this case, where some of the things they propose, some of the details actually clash with other rights. So women's rights are clashing with some of the trans rights. Now, not overwhelmingly, not on, on every aspect, but on crucial aspects. Now, you could forgive a government for getting that wrong if it was unforeseen, unforeseeable. But in this case, the extraordinary thing is that many people pointed out that there were problems with this and they were simply not addressed. And I think in this case, I think some greater care and attention to some of the genuine legitimate concerns could have avoided you know, the situation that the Scottish government now finds itself in. So I think one of the things about that in this case is, is, is a kind of a lack of due process, consideration of alternative voices, views, um, and, and to railroad something through was not a good idea. And, the, and I think it's very important to recognise that it is possible to move forward uh, and advance rights for, for the trans community, um, but without having to, to go in the direction that, that the First Minister is, is, seems to have uh, convinced herself is essential. Um, but I do think that's a very important point, the, the, the lack of consideration. And also, and this is where it's not just the government's fault, I think the Parliament has a very important role. I mean, the Parliament was set up, you know, in the first place to scrutinise and make sure we get good legislation. I don't think they come out with it very well on this issue. I was going to ask you about that next. Obviously, one of the most contentious aspects of the gender reform bill was the constant stalling in Holyrood, the delays, the kind of points of order we, we saw constantly. Do you think those that were opposed to the bills and those that are perhaps opposed to the wider SNP platform have helped themselves out here? Or do they sometimes look a bit like the crying wolf by just opposing the government on everything so that when they have a legitimate point, it just doesn't come across? Yeah, I mean, I think we live in a very adversarial kind of political culture we have here. You know, the oppositions oppose and 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 they'll oppose, you know, almost invariably. And, and that's that's just the nature of our politics. And I think, you know, we, we have to recognise that that's going to be the case and that there will be people there who will just try to take advantage of a difficult situation. But that's quite distinct, I think, from, you know, some of the other things that have been going on in this case, where really it was, we've got ourselves into a mess on this and we're finding people opposing one another another who ought to be on the same side. And we have seen, even in this highly adversarial political culture that we have in Scotland, over many years, that parties in government and parties in opposition have been able to work together on some issues, or at least some of the parties in opposition have been able to work with government. And I think the great tragedy of this case is the way in which it's become so polarised and in which trenches have been dug deep and, and, and there's been an, an, a refusal to listen. I think listening and engaging constructively is important. And, and, and you're right, of course, in Parliament, you'll have these kind of big battles that take place. And, and that's normal. But in the chamber, that, that happens the world over. But in a good working Parliament, the kind of behaviour in committees ought to be different. It ought to be more constructive. You should leave your kind of strong party alignments behind and get on with the business of truly scrutinising legislation, improving the legislation, pointing out faults and making recommendations as to how to improve the matter. And, and sadly, on this occasion, and I don't think it's common, I don't think this has happened at all across the board with every piece of legislation, we've just not seen that. Do you worry that this development could perhaps continue then as politics becomes more adversarial? Opposition to the SNP perhaps think this is a good way to bring down a bill, whereas the Scottish government itself may think we just 
need to try and ram through something if we want it to pass. Do you see this adversarial relationship between the government and opposition and worsening after this example? I, I, I mean, I think, I think, I mean, we've got to get some give and take on both sides, and I think particularly from the government. The government's the government holds all the cards here. I mean, the government's a powerful institution here. It's it's the one with the, the votes in in the parliament, and I think they've really got to reach out and try to to find agreement. So I think the government it's really largely up to the government, but also the opposition. But I I, I, th I think there's a real danger that we're heading into this hyper adversarial period. We've always had adversarial politics, but we're heading into a period if we don't watch out where you know we're just going to be unable to to, to have proper scrutiny of legislation and discussions of policy. And recognising, you know, the world isn't actually always black and white. Much policy is grey. It's shades of grey. And, 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 and I guess for someone like me, it frustrates me listening to debates where everything has to be kind of polarised. And so much is seen through the prism of the constitutional question, you know, about whether it advances or undermines the case for independence. That's an important debate. It's a vitally important debate, but it's not the only debate we should or, or could be having. Are there any examples in the past where we've had perhaps equally contentious issues in Holyrood, but parties on other sides have been able to work constructively? You know, passing an important bill, the government has essentially got what they've wanted, but the opposition has also managed to get some amendments accepted. Are there some examples of that? Yeah, I mean, if you go right the way back to the early days of, of, of devolution and and gay rights. I mean, that was an area in which the governing party, the Labour Party, came forward with proposals, and the main opposition, the SNP, worked very, very constructively with Labour on that. Now, there were voices in each of the main political parties, it has to be said, that didn't like the, the, the proposals that were coming forward and, and voiced those concerns, but it didn't divide sharply on party grounds. And equally, while it was very, very contentious and the debates were very, very heated, it was very clear that the leaderships of the political parties, and that was crucial, the leaderships of all the parties worked very well together on that. And that was a tricky area. It was a sensitive area. And, and though in retrospect, we look back and we think, why did it take so long? What was the issue here? At the time, you know, believe me, it really was a, a big issue. And, and, and I do think that they, they handled that, that very, very well indeed. Obviously, the return deposit scheme is another one we are now seeing could perhaps, if it doesn't fall by the wayside, could come under pressure if it isn't compatible with the rest of the UK. Do you think the Scottish government have a hard job in their hands when they're not only trying to pass legislation, but also must sometimes make sure that, that legislation is compatible with, I suppose, laws and rules across the rest of the UK? I think it's not just rules and, and, and such like. I think it's about the fact, I mean, regardless of Scotland's constitutional status, we're in a, 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 we share an economy. And, you know, if Scotland was an independent state, it would still be part of a bigger economy. We'd still be wanting to sell goods and services south of the border. We'd still be wanting to buy goods and services from south of the border. And so we need to always take that into account. And, and indeed, one would, one would imagine we'll be be doing more than just south of the border. We'll be looking at Europe and making sure we're working hand in glove with them. So I think, you know, in, in this highly interconnected, interdependent world, governments cannot simply make policies without any consideration as to what your neighbour is doing. Now, it doesn't mean to say you have to do what they're doing, but you need to take that into account as well. Now, of course, that doesn't mean to say that, the, you know, you should be bullied by your next door neighbour. Um, but, you know, what we need to get there again is some cooperation and at least discussions, consultations, negotiations, and certainly to, to let the other 
government know what you're proposing to do and see if you can work a way around that. That's in everybody's interest. There is, there is nobody gains, frankly, from having some kind of massive battle over issues like this, you know, deposit scheme. And it's, this, is, this is just crazy. You know, we, we surely could be able and should be able to work uh, towards a common uh, position on that. Now, not always. There will be occasions when we won't and we will have differences. Um, and But, but the, the way you deal with that is through negotiations and discussions, not by kind of grandstanding and so on and so forth. We're getting far too much of this grandstanding and everything becomes a big constitutional question. It's, this is not what the people out there are thinking. They, you know, people want to kind of have governments deal with the cost of living and you know, the state of their schools, their kids are sent to the health service and such like. And I do think that we've got to start getting things into perspective. And I think we're maybe failing to do that. And I'm not saying it's one party, but it's certainly the nature of, of, of our politics. Now, that hyper-adversarial politics I'm talking about is largely driven by the constitutional question. And on that topic, when it comes to passing laws, obviously the SNP want to see their bills pass, but do you think there is an element of the SNP that perhaps welcomes these challenges from the UK because they can then argue that independence case, they can say, well, here's the UK government blocking law in Scotland, this is why we need to be independent. Is there an element of that at play at all? Well, I'm sure there's an element of that. I mean, there's always been within the SNP an element that was kind of up and at them, as it were, and was quite happy to have a, a, a battle, or if some kind of big dispute kind of all comes along to try and turn it into a constitutional question. But it's not always been the case, and it's certainly not the view of everyone in the SNP. If you go back to the first parliament where the SNP was the largest party, 2007 to 11, is really notable how constructive, I mean, there were differences and there were arguments and battles and such like, but how constructive the engagement between the Scottish government and the UK government was in that period. And, you know, we talk about so motions and such like, well, you know, Scottish government, the SNP Scottish government was quite willing and happy to allow UK government to legislate in certain areas that came under the jurisdiction of the Scottish Parliament because they thought it was in the interests of Scotland. Now, I don't think we should we'll get back to quite to that position anytime soon. But we need to bear in mind that there is a different way of operating. And that applies to both sides in this debate, because ultimately, you know, if you really, if you've got two governments or even one government in place that wants a fight, there's not much you can really do about it. The, unless you've got a willingness to cooperate, even when there's differences, and find a way through, unless you've got that, then, then no amount of institutional reforms or anything else will, will satisfy. Otherwise, we'll end up spending all our time in the Supreme Court paying huge sums of money to bloody lawyers, frankly, which I don't think is a good thing. And we shouldn't be allowing, frankly, the Supreme Court to essentially be the, the, the second chamber of the Scottish Parliament determining what should and shouldn't be passed. And moving forward, what lessons do you think the Scottish Government and indeed the Scottish Parliament and its representatives as a whole can take from issues like the Gender Reform Bill when it comes to, say, the National Care Service Bill, which is going to be massive in scope and is already coming under pressure? What, what lessons can be learned there? I think the main lesson is to listen to other views and take account of all the unintended consequences, the challenges, the difficulties, recognise that, you know, having a National Care Service in itself is a good idea, but actually putting it into practice 
is incredibly difficult and be very, very wary of simple solutions. The notion that you can have just a national centralised care service and it's going to improve the quality of care is nonsense. And anyone who's done any work in this area knows that. So let's be very careful. It's tricky. It's difficult. And what we don't want from the opposition is to take advantage of that and try to undermine it. We want to come up with kind of ideas to, to make sure that we improve the quality of care in Scotland and and if we could keep that as at, at the forefront of our mind and really scrutinize constructively critically uh, approach this then then we can move forward that was professor james mitchell talking to justin bowie who is here with me and rachel amory right now justin let's start with the gender stuff the professor says the supreme court can't become a revising chamber why why is that happening well, in the case of the Gender Reform Bill, the UK government um, stepped in to essentially block uh, the passing of that law. They argued that the idea that someone in Scotland could perhaps change gender with greater ease than in England could could complicate it down south. You know, if someone up here has a gender certificate in, in Scotland saying that they've changed gender, but that, you know, that change necessarily wouldn't be recognised down south. Obviously, the Scottish government will still want to pass these laws. There's the possibility now that it could go to the courts. And it comes against the background of the SNP's attempts to secure an independence referendum. That obviously also got ruled down by the Supreme Court. So you know, as Professor Mitchell talks about, he mentioned this sort of adversarial culture. And we're seeing at the moment the Conservatives at UK level being very opposed to certain measures the SNP want to pass. You know, measures that kind of take Scotland in a different direction to England. But meanwhile, you know, I suppose the SNP are just determined to get these laws passed and you end up in this kind of complicated legal situation where, you know, it's, it's lawyers potentially deciding, deciding instead of politicians. Uh, you didn't seem particularly enamoured by uh, the amount of money that's going to the legal establishment at the moment. Uh, Rachel, you, you, you sat in the gallery for First Minister's questions on Thursday. A lot of this general subject was being aired politically and it's partisan fashion, pure politics between the parties as usual. So it's not just gender reform, Justin and and profession, Professor James, which we're talking about many other subjects there. What other what are the big problems that are facing the government now beyond gender recognition? Yeah, I think that's, it's always good to look at that because I think if you were to just hear what's going on in sort of around parliament, you would think there's nothing else happening but gender reform. Yeah. And like you said, there's a lot of things that are coming under a lot of scrutiny and a lot of criticism. Um, National Care Service, like you were talking about there in that interview, Justin, that's definitely one that's coming under a lot of criticism because there seems to be a lot of a lack of detail, particularly around um, funding and where the money's going to come from because obviously it's going to be a huge undertaking if that goes ahead. Mm. Alcohol advertising was one that came up in the chamber yesterday. I think it was Murdo Fraser from the Conservatives highlighting that um, whiskey companies are particularly concerned about potential changes to alcohol advertising laws in in Scotland. Um, another one's the deposit return scheme. This has been going on for quite a few years now. Um, when it gets introduced, you'll pay a little bit more for a bottle of juice, for example. Mm. And the idea is that you'll get that money back when you take the bottle back. And it's meant to be good for the environment and all the rest of it. Um, it's been delayed a lot. It's come under a lot of criticism. And yesterday was quite interesting because the criticism came from Fergus Ewing, who is an SNP backbencher. Um, kind of a bit rogue on that one. He just was not happy at all, really laying into his own government there about um, how potentially problematic something like the deposit return scheme could be. And that's not what you want, is it? Someone from your own backbenches no. criticising your own 
policies. So that's not good for the SNP. He used, um, he, he put on the full Fergus Ewing, I think, which is now becoming a known kind of trope. And uh, yes, this is, this, is, this is not just a catastrophe or disaster and very slow enunciation of his, of his um, concerns towards the, the first minister. But he's, he's been a thorn in the side on a number of things at the moment. He's, you know, politically, they're not fully aligned, shall we say. But, uh, and there's, there's, there's obviously a lot of history there. But he was talking about the A9. He's talking about infrastructure. He's talking about the bottle deposit. And, you know, you hear the, the grumblings stage left and stage right as well. But this, it's really been a, a, I think what I'm trying to say here is that they all came together in quite a way this week. And it, it's not been a pleasant experience for Nicola Sturgeon, you'd imagine. No, I mean, um, for example, like when it came to the gender reform dissent in her own party, she was making the point that not everybody needs to agree on every single issue within that party as long as they broadly agree. But even that is starting to look a little bit sort of shaky when it comes to somebody like Fergus Ewing, for example, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, and before we get to some of the other talking points, I feel a jingle coming on. So let's regroup and take a closer look at the stories as they affect the communities that we cover every day. Let's start in Dundee, Rachel. Uh, turn to you again. The Scottish Government is consulting on the environmental impact of disposable plastic vapes. In Dundee, there's a growing call to get moving a bit quicker. Can you bring us up to speed with what we know here? Yeah, this is something that um, our colleague Derek has been looking at. Um, also, the environment team at the Courier have been looking into this as well. I'm sure you we're all familiar with um, these sort of plastic disposable vapes that are growing in popularity. But obviously, they're getting thrown around uh, on the ground as litter. And I think when you think about litter, it just sort of gets lost in the mire of all the other kinds of litter there. But a lot of people have now been looking um, specifically at how much of the litter is disposable vapes. And if you see some of the pictures on our websites, for example, it's a staggering number is actually on the ground getting picked up by these campaigners. Um, I think it really highlights this problem that maybe we didn't realise was as big a problem as it is. How, how how would this kind of how would a ban work though? I mean, it seems like the campaigners that have identified this problem, they've, they've, they're doing their job in Dundee. They're looking and they found what dozens and dozens in the space of an hour. Is it possible? How how do you do a ban like that in in a place like Dundee city centre? Yeah, this is something that um, Mercedes Villalba. She she is based in Dundee and she is a northeast MSP for the Labour Party. She's called for a pilot scheme to be launched and it would cover Dundee city centre. And the idea being that if it was successful, it could then be pushed out nationwide instead um but yeah it's it's how how would something like that work is still um slightly we're not too sure about how it would actually work in practice and what the knock-on effects of it all would be for example we've had um previous things with like um, single-use plastics and like like takeaway things maybe something like that would be something to look at yeah extending the ban on single-use plastics and and it wasn't just campaigning a lot of these things uh pit side against side but um Derek spoke to one man who runs a, a shop which sells disposable vapes he didn't want to be named in the article but you can go back and read it for yourself because it's like campaigners a politician and a guy who actually sells the things says that uh, yeah there's more hassle than it's worth getting getting banned <laughs> so watch this space for more on that one as the consultation continues and Justin what's been catching your eye this week well, one of the major problems facing the SNP in Holyrood this week has been further delays to the duelling of the A9 between Perth and Inverness. 
The SNP have basically been promising to do this for pretty much the entirety of their time in power, but they've admitted that the current targets to have it jeweled um, will no longer be met. That has obviously been met with a lot of anger from the opposition. The Conservatives have been criticising on that regularly. You know, they've received some criticism from their own side on that one as well. Fergus Ewing, again, that's another issue that he has been very unhappy about as an Inverness MSP. And I think it just kind of points to the wider struggles the SNP have had on infrastructure. There's roads all across the country that, you know, where upgrades have been delayed. Roads are just quite frankly in a really, really bad state. We know the problems that the SNP have had with ferries and I suppose as we move forward and as we try to, you know, try to move away from road use to the same extent for, for the good of the environment, you know, obviously people in the north still need to use the A9 every day. There's just often not the transport links to kind of compensate for that. And the other problem with the A9 is, is that at the moment we've seen just so many tragic accidents and Myrtle Fraser, the Conservative MSP, warned that these are going to continue. More people are going to die the longer that this road is not jeweled. The government argue that you know, current economic pressures have made it more difficult to accept bids for parts of the road to be upgraded. The costs are perhaps higher than they were before, but that's not going to be much solace yeah. for locals who just don't have a road that's good enough for them. Yeah, and if you look further north than Inverness, the A9 goes a lot higher up the map uh, and, and there's no prospect of, of um, upgrades anywhere near like what they're being promising between Perth and Inverness. But even there, they feel like the focus on dueling one part of the A9 is, is still leaving communities north of Inverness at a disadvantage and they already deal with um, extremely slow train services and, and other problems that everyone faces away from centres of population. While we're up there, I was struck by something that my colleague Callum Ross had been turning up. Again, some interesting lines on land reform. Uh, I was struck by this one because it's another voice from government of yesteryear, Peter Peacock, who was a minister in the previous Labour Lib Dem administration. And he's calling for an addition to the land reform bill. Another area where the government are perhaps getting more constructive criticism than the claims of bad law that we might be discussing earlier. He wants a rich list of the top 100 landowners and, crucially, more information and an inquiry into their public subsidies. It's a useful talking point and something you can read more about on the P&J and Courier pages. It's not specific to the Highlands, of course, land ownership and the concentration of it in so many a small number of hands is a problem everywhere in the country. I suppose this gets back to the con the constructive opposition idea again, Justin. I don't know if that kind of story with Peter Peacock attempting to improve legislation which isn't being just you know it's not being just written off at this point this is the kind of thing that we're talking about yeah i mean I, I suppose it's interesting i suppose when you watch you know first minister's questions or you know exchanges in the chamber it can seem though often is very heated and you get sides knocking lumps out of each other but i suppose behind closed doors and you, you watch some of the committees sometimes even though there's still plenty of party politi politicking there's you know also sometimes a greater degree of cooperation there's you know Sometimes more scrutiny than you realise. So, yeah, sometimes it's not all bad. And I think, you know, there's lots of people in Scotland who want to improve certain laws. And you kind of hope a lot of the time that the people we elect are there with genuine intentions to make law better at the same time. Yeah. I mean, we're in Parliament a lot of the time. And uh, it is quite something when you see politicians in different parties yelling at each other across the floor of the chamber and then you you pop downstairs and you walk through the canteen and they're having a wee chat over a cup of tea or passing the time of day in the queue for a, a sandwich. Maybe that's something to go to frenemies. We'll do a special edition on 
Holyrood's best for enemies. That can be one for the future. Okay, well, that's it for this week. Thanks to Justin Bowie, Rachel Amory, guest Professor James Mitchell, producer Morvin McIntyre, and of course to you for listening. We'll be back next week with more from the Labour Party conference in Edinburgh. And until then, you can pick up a paper or log on to The Courier, The Press and Journal and all of our news brands so that you can be better briefed. The Stushi is the politics podcast from DC Thompson, designed to help you understand the implications of what happens in Holyrood, Westminster and our communities so that you can be better briefed. Don't miss an episode by following The Stushy today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. And if you know folks like you who want to understand politics in Scotland a little better, suggest they tune in or follow Stushy Scott on Twitter and Facebook. And stay even more up to date on local and Scottish news by subscribing to The Courier or Press and Journal, where you can get one month of unlimited access for just £1. Check the episode notes for details and terms.